You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject you've tuned in to hear from is Gregor McIntosh from long-running UK doom metalers. I suppose that fits these days still. Paradise Lost. The reason for the conversation is to promote the band's 2017 December tour of Australia. So let's hear what he has to say. Here we go. ...called Medusa that will be released on the 1st of September. What can fans expect? Uh, well, if it's yeah, if it's fans, I would say um, stylistically, uh, the nearest thing I could um, liken it to is maybe somewhere between uh, Gothic and Shades of God albums. Somewhere between those two, stylistically, that's the easiest way to explain it. Really, I would say it's more of a it's more of more of a doom metal album than either of those two records, though. Really. Yeah. Um, it's very raw, organic sound, and that's because it's literally just as as it was mic'd up and recorded. There's not not one edit on any guitars or drums on there. It's just as it was recorded. Um, so you, you're either going to love that or you're going to hate it, because I know there's a big um, trend in mainstream metal to, you know, there's a whole generation of people that don't even know what a real drum kit sounds like. Um, yes, because it's all, there's, mm. there's been this trend to have very very compressed sampled drums um, in metal, and it's to me it's just getting a little boring now. It's you know every record that I grew up with sounded completely different from the next, and it had its own personality. And that was that was kind of the idea behind the recording on this record uh, was to get an album with personality. You know, regardless of whether you like it or not, you can tell it from the minute you put it on. You know. Um, yeah, no, that's so record, fantastic. Yeah. Record, you know, that recording-wise, that was the idea. But writing-wise, it was probably dictated by the last song that we wrote for the previous album, which was a song called Beneath Broken Earth. Um, and it was a very doomy song, and we just loved how it turned out, and we loved playing it live, and we just thought, hey, let's do a full, al- full album, this kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just take a tangent for a moment, because you did mention something that I think is really important there, and that's about this, this whole... In- I'm going to call it an insidious trend of using drum machines instead of real drummers. Now, I had the pleasure of talking to um, uh, the drummer Thunderstick, who, of course, was in Samson and the uh, pre-recorded version of Iron Maiden last night, and he's released a new record um, called Something Wicked This Way Comes, and we spoke for about an hour and a half last night, actually, and I love what he's done with his drums, not just with the album, but the way he's actually approached putting drums to the tracks as well. And he's got this old school shuffle feel. And I realized after I spoke to him and I re-listened to the album a couple of times today because I'm doing a review for it, um, that the the thing that separates the album is actually the drumming. That's what it is. I'm so used to these Mm -hmm. triggered drums and these programmed drums. And and another drummer that I'm a bit of a fan of is um, Pete Defeat Sandoval from um, Morbid Angel. Right, Um, yeah, yeah. I mean... I don't think people understand that I now I I don't want to be I don't want to misquote here or say the wrong thing, but I understand that he didn't use triggers. I, I don't I don't know how he did I, that, or am I wrong? I, I I happen to know for a fact that he did live, uh-huh. and I because Paradise Lost toured with Morbid Angel in '93 in America, and um, he had D drums on every drum. D-drum triggers on every drum. Right. Okay. Do you think that was just for economical purposes in terms of just to keep his sanity and also his his um, uh, stamina consistent? No, I think, it, I, I think it was the start of a trend. I think that was the beginning of a trend where because drummers were playing so fast, they can't actually give it any t- 
type of, for want of a better word, pasty. <laughs> they can't mm. they can't hit with any gusto. You know, it's it's all very light and tappy, and it's not going to come out. It's not going to come out front. It's not going to. It's just going to sound like a wash. Yes. So you have these triggers on fast faster drummers. Uh, well, you can hear it with like Nick Barker now. You know, he's, there's triggers on a lot of the stuff that he plays live. I mean, he's a great guy, a good friend of mine. Um, but he plays so fast that he, he, you know it, it needs triggers to be even to, to differentiate, differentiate between what he's playing. Jesus, um, yeah, okay, I, yeah, no, that's a fair call, I, mate. Yeah, and and I, and I think this whole trend began with Mori Sound. That's the first time I heard it. You uh-huh. know, the, the Mori Sound Studios in Florida. Yeah, that course. was the first time I, I heard kick drum, kick drum, kick drum triggers. Um, you know, with the clicky kick drum sound. That was the first time I ever heard it, and then it kind of developed from there you know so like the early death records are human that sort of thing with um chris reinard i think the drummer's name back then that that sort of sound because i i often wondered i listened to that record human and i think my god i remember when that i don't remember when it came out but i remember getting it a couple of years after it first came out too young when it first came out to really appreciate it 93 or 94 i remember listening to the drums on that record and thinking what on earth have these guys done here to produce this sound it just sounded inhuman yeah, it was it was it was the studio Mori sound, and particularly a, a producer called Scott Burns. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he was that was the first time I personally had been aware of um, triggered kick drums. So you were getting this typewriter kick drum sound. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I might just go back uh, a minute or two. You mentioned that you toured with Morbid Angel. Now, I know this has got nothing to do with Paradise Lost, but you're a very interesting bloke to talk to, and I have been looking forward to this chat, by the way. And no, no, no problem. No I knew problem. you'd be a wealth of information and all sorts of great <laughs> stories, but what was it like touring with, with uh, Morbid Angel back then? Because I've um, I've interviewed David Vincent once, and I've had a few email exchanges with him and, and his uh, wife, manager, Suzanne. Um, he's a lovely bloke, by the way, but Trag Zagto reminds me of a pretty strange individual am i on the money there or is that uh is he just well all all, all i could give you is my impressions and my uh, summarization of of it i mean it's not you know it's just it's just my yeah sure yeah and my angle um well when we toured when we toured back in 93 or whatever it was morbid angel creator and paradise lost at the time the world was a lot very political there was a lot of political stuff going on and um, Morbid Angel had right-wing tendencies and Creator had left-wing tendencies. Yes, and I've, I've spoken to Millie a little bit about this as well, so I know exactly where you're headed to, actually, yeah. yeah. And lots of shows were getting pulled um, because of this. Mm. So, I mean, for, for you know, we were just stuck in the middle. We were kind of like this band that just wanted to play some shows. Uh, and... We were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place to some degree, and we got on with both bands. You know, we got on with David very well, and I, we got on with Millie very well. You know, um, but we were kind of just stuck there. And I, I could see everyone's viewpoints. Um, you know, some of the things David said back then, right back then, were very silly. They're not um, things that like, you'd say in 2017, are they? Well, for instance, it was the time of the Bosnian conflict, and mm. at one at one gig. David came up to me and Nick, our vocalist, and said, "I've the new Kerrang's come out and it's got me saying, he said he agreed with the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Bosnia. Hmm. Uh, and he said, how do I get out of this? And we were like, well, there's no getting out of it now, David. That's it. You know, you've said this now. Uh, that's just the way it is. 
And um, I think he was. I think he had some very strange and silly ideas back then. But I think it was born out of ignorance than more than anything else, more than malice. Um, but he's still dangerous, obviously. Um, but I think he's just grown up a lot. That, I mean, it was. I, I think he's learned a lot and experienced a lot and. Everyone I talk to now says he's a thoroughly lovely bloke. He's a, he's and I don't, a, you're right, you're going, sorry. I, sorry, sorry. I don't think he wasn't a lovely bloke then. I think he was just kind of ignorant. You yeah, know, I uh, think when you're young, you have these ideas and they're, they're, you can be very idealistic when you're young, can't you? It's very, very, very rare to find someone over the age of 40 or 45 who's idealistic. We tend to have the idealism beaten out of us by then. And um, when you're young, you tend to form these views and you can exist in a bit of an echo chamber or a vacuum with people around you that just sort of silently nod and support your views, but without actually having any knowledge to refute what you're saying. And that's probably what happened there, I'd, I'd suggest. And yeah, it's it. I, I asked merely, I, I definitely, I'm not a political animal at all. I'll go on record and say that. Uh, and I certainly mm-hmm. don't, don't draw don't wish to draw political statements or comments out of people that I interview. That's certainly not my bag whatsoever. But um, Mm -hmm. I interviewed Millie at about the time that I think Angela Merkel was copying a lot of flack for the the decisions that she made around some of the displaced peoples from Syria. Um, And he mentioned that he supported her decision. And even even somebody else who you probably know exactly what his background is, but Carl Willits from Bolt Thrower and Memoriam, fantastic bloke. Um, I asked him about Trump. And, of course, you can imagine what he said. If you oh, know yeah, the bloke. Yeah. yeah. And um, he went into uh, – he became quite philosophical about the whole thing. And, of course, he's very educated. He's went to, he went to the University of Birmingham, so he's got a degree. And he mm-hmm. understands the construct behind critical thinking. I think that's the way that he termed it. Yeah. And the story that – I wrote, actually, I, this is before I did podcasting. I wrote the story, and it actually blew up and went viral on, of course, Blabbermouth. God, I felt sorry for Carl. Um, you should have seen the comments that he was receiving on Twitter and on Facebook and the like. And I was actually going to contact him and ask him if he wanted me to pull the article down, but I thought he's got my number. He can contact me. You know what I mean? In other words, he's a grown man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't want the article pulled down because um, he's very open about his political views. And he, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're on on Twitter with him. Yes, yeah. But 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 he's constantly putting stuff up about that. And um, I, w- I did a gig with Memoriam. With, I was with Ballonfire the other week, and we went and us and Memoriam did a gig together in Germany at a festival. Cool. Yeah. And I, and I was sat backstage talking to him. And it, Andy Whale, the drummer, I, I haven't seen him for 25 years. We used to gig together in the early days of Paradise Lost with Bolt Thrower. Cool. You know, the original Bolt Thrower drummer. Yeah. And, um, and I was talking to him, and I said, bloody hell, Carl, Carl never shuts up about politics, does he? He says, oh, don't get me started, he said. <laughs> He said, we just tell him, we just sort of switch off when he starts going on about Jeremy Corbyn and things like that. So, um, so, so yeah, Carl's, he's very opinionated. And if you're in a position where you're in a band and you're very opinionated, you're going to get flack from both sides. You're going to get people who agree with you and people who don't disagree with you. It's like me personally, I have, I have, I have fairly strong views on various matters. Most of them are ethical. Um, and I don't really like politicians, full stop. Hmm. Um, which is why I don't really put it out there too much. I, I will say things about ethical decisions that various politicians of various parties might make, but I'm not going to be like Carl and and not that there's anything wrong with that. But yeah, but that's know, his I, persona. I, that's that's his persona. That's not your persona. I yeah. think that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But I, I well, tell you, well, well, 
Yeah. I just I just see politics going in circles. I remember my dad saying this when I was a kid, and it's he, he sees like one party will spend and the other party will clear it up, and it, and and That's this so just true. goes in circles. And you'll you'll either be popular or you won't for for, for either decision. Um, and they all make good and bad decisions, but as soon as you put someone in a position of power, they're going to abuse that power anyway, which is kind of why I get I, I I'm a little bit of a anarchist but i have no i have no um answers so anarchy isn't really on the cards because yeah (laughs) you you know i just don't trust the people that run the place you know yeah it's a pretty interesting situation in england or britain i should say sorry at the moment um it seems to me like um corbyn is more popular than theresa may but theresa may is in power have i got a fairly good read on that there or is that just the way the media and the 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 social media aspect of it i guess is um playing things out no, that's absolutely right. That's that's how it works. That's how it has worked uh, out. But um, you know, wh- whatever your views are, the the thing that annoys me is at the moment in the UK is that there's all these referendums and the you know polls and, and whatever else, and uh, and it just seems to me that the people who lose don't like losing so much. Oh God, they just yeah. they they just want to keep on having referendums and polls rather than getting on with something. And, um, you know, I might not agree with the result of certain polls and certain referendums, but it's detrimental to just keep saying, well, let's just keep having these polls and referendums until we like the result. What if that, 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 de- that defeats democracy. I mean, that's, that's not democracy then, is it? You know? I, I couldn't agree more. And whatever happened, this is in Australia too, by the way, Australian politics and English, uh, God, I said it again, British politics and Australian politics, are fairly similar in that I think I'd fi- I, I might be completely wrong here and not have my finger on the pulse, but it feels like as though we've lost an aspect of bipartisanship, just running the country for the good of the electorate. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of the major Western countries suffer from that. And that's probably why Trump got in. I, get, I think uh, you're dead right there. I think you're spot on. Because, yeah. the, because they were just sick of the rhetoric. I don't think uh, between oh gosh between you and I whoever anybody else is listening I don't think people that voted for Trump actually voted for Trump at all I think they voted for just someone to come in and break up the system and you know drain the absolutely. swamp I think was one of his cue cards um, yeah yeah exactly, that was an yeah. incredible moment in history really wasn't it when I think about it it was just this really bizarre situation where a reality TV star and a bloke who inherited his father's millions and business sense had these now the leader of the free world effectively no matter which way you know a lot of people disagree with that statement saying no there's no more free world anymore it's it's a bit different than that that's your old world tech that's old world language that you're using there but look at the end of the day the u.s is still the uh strongest political uh or economic and and military country on the planet and this is the bloke that's leading them and you sort of think how's the next three years going to play out well, I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I remember seeing a film years and years and years ago, um, a Mike Judge film. And From I can't remember Beavis the name. Butthead, the Beavis and Butthead guy? Yeah, but I can't remember <laughs> his... I, I, I can't remember what the film was called, but it was a, a political film, but a comedy, and it was the the biggest WWF wrestler. A guy, a guy went into a coma, and when he woke up, he came out of it, and this wrestler was the president of the United States. And it was like it was like this bizarre situation comedy where like as if the as if the biggest wrestler in the world would become the president just because he's the biggest most popular wrestler, 
but it's life imitating art, isn't it, again? I think that film is called Idiocracy. Right, okay, that'll be it, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm just Googling it now whilst I'm chatting to you. Um, I'm just trying to... It sounds a lot like that, actually. Yeah, it's talking about... Um, just for the people that are listening, I'll just give the very quick synopsis. I won't give the whole thing, of course, but Idiocracy is a satirical science fiction comedy film directed by Mike Judge, of course. The film tells the story of two people who take part in a top-secret military human hibernation experiment only to awaken 500 years later in a dystopian society where advertising commercialism and, and cultural anti-intellectualism have run rampant and which is devoid of intellectual curiosity, social responsibility and coherent notions of justice and human rights. Hmm. Okay. Sounds. It sounds like it's on the same wavelength, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's that's what popped into my head the morning I got up and that um, Donald Trump was president. That 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 film popped into my head. You know, uh, I don't know why. Just because it's yeah, just because it's life imitating art, I guess. You know. Yeah. It's. I don't think he understands the mandate that he has been given by people in some ways, mate. I don't think that he understands that people really want him to do something very different he just seems to be going along like a bad president at the moment if you don't mind me saying sorry to anybody out there that supports him yeah i mean I've, I've, i can see the reasons why he was voted in just just people's like obviously there's a lot of that's maybe a bit of small town mentality thing going on somewhere but but it's because they're just tired of that of politicians and i, I think i think the same thing's starting to happen in the UK where people are just tired of this rhetoric um, and nothing really changing. And um, I guess if you get someone who's making outlandish promises, um, yeah, yeah, you know, they're going to go, they're going to go, hey, hey, well, at least something might change. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's something that's a fairly contentious issue, really, you know. Yeah, no, agreed, mate, agreed. Well, let me ask you something then about the music industry because I have read a few. You've actually offered some very good quotes that are available on the internet, as George W. Bush used to call it. Um, and <laughs> one of the quotes I read on Blabbermouth, it was from a few years ago, um, but what was unique about your comments is that they didn't attract the usual trolls and uh, the people at Taunt Artists for having an opinion. So evidently many people agree with your philosophy. So what's your take on how things are going in the music industry in 2017? My take on it, uh, I I think there's a lot of good and a lot of bad that happened when the internet, internets happened. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously a lot of the, revenue that was within the music business that filters down eventually to bands disappeared. Uh, so you get labels that are, uh, have very little money. There's no, you can't really do videos that well anymore. You can't, you know, the, the, the touring budgets are non-existent, you know, uh, lots of things have changed, but, but positively, um, Things like Bandcamp came along, which is like the modern um, tape trading, I guess. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, um, so, and so there are lots. Of, there are lots of positive things about. It. I mean, there's things like uh, you, you don't need as many people involved in the chain to get your music heard. If, if anyone, you know, you, you don't need these creepy advertising people anymore. You don't need hangers on at management level and things like that. You don't need all that anymore. Um, re- record labels had too much money at one point anyway. Yeah. Um, so 
it really shook them up and made them realize, look, we can't just sit back and be fat, rich men behind desks anymore. You know, we have to actually go out and work for our money. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a lot tougher, but it, it certainly, uh, makes you work for it. If you, it gives you a hunger, I guess, I suppose in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 a double-edged sword. I mean, what can I say? I mean, when I when I was first touring, yeah, there was a lot more money in the music industry, but um, you know, I couldn't ring home. <laughs> you know, I couldn't I couldn't talk yeah. to my family. Yeah. On, you know, the internet's provided lots of things. You know, the world's much a much smaller place that you can you know I I can tour for seven weeks and I can talk to my family every night. You know, face to face. Yeah, it's great. wonderful, isn't it? I know I've done I've. I've done a lot of traveling and I've only just finished uh, my, my career, if you like, as a telecommunications account executive so as I can focus on this and do this full time. And the last two and a half years, I spent completely away from home, living out of a suitcase on flights and all the rest of it. No complaints. It was a decision yeah. I made and frankly, I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, one, one thing I did notice, I used to use this um, or Skype or this application called Blue Jeans to talk to the kids. But yeah, it was it was interesting my youngest who is now two and a half years of age i virtually lived out of a suitcase the entire time she's alive right up until a month ago so there, right. there are there are good and bad things from the perspective that i think um nothing i mean you're a touring musician so it's a very different scenario there that's part and parcel and i'm sure your family's completely used to you being away for months at a time but for me in my role it was like i sort of had to make a decision do i keep doing this or do i do i get out because it's not like there's any end in sight like the end of a touring cycle it's just this is where the work is go yeah yeah well no no but there was a similar point in our careers where um i had young kids i mean my kids are grown now but i had young kids um and we were away from home we could we could have been away two years straight you know and um the only way you could contact home is if you went out searching for the currency of that particular country mm. then go then go and search for a phone card then hope you could find a phone box that accepted that phone card, <laughs> and then and then you'd have to hope that the person was in because they had to be in for the phone to ring, you know. Um, and more often than not, you didn't talk to anyone for a week, two weeks on end, you know, um, at any given time. And having young kids, I mean, it, it did make you question, like, what the hell am I doing, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, I can appreciate that. So, but mate, how how have you know famously? With the exception of the the drummer role in your band, you are entirely intact from your formation in the in the mid eighties, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So, how on earth have you not murdered each other over that long period of time? <laughs> oh, there's been there's been moments, um, but um, I, I think the the big uh, factor would be sense of humour. I think I think um, yeah. we take the music we take the music very seriously, but absolutely nothing else in this industry or indeed in life, do we take that seriously at all? You know, you, ha you have to be able to laugh at pretty much anything. Otherwise you just become really cynical. Um, and also give it, knowing when not to speak to someone as much as when to speak to them, you know, knowing everyone's boundaries is something you only get from knowing people for quite a long time. Hmm. Um, but, but I think he, he, the, the thing about sense of humor and, um, and also, uh, like ego, um, are, are things that are problems within bands. You know, the bands that I've known that haven't made it or, you know, haven't split up, sorry, uh, sorry, haven't managed to stay together. It's always been 
someone's had an ego or some someone's taking something too seriously. Um, and I think it could be just down to the area where we come from because it's a very self-depreciating sense of humour and you're not encouraged in any way, shape or form with your chosen profession. And any amount of um, success you have is beaten out of you. Um, and there are good and bad factors to that. The good factor is that's probably why we stay together because no one can have an ego and everyone kind of laughs at themselves. But by the same token, sometimes I envy the Finns and the Swedes <laughs> where one of their bands gets a modicum of success and everyone champions it. I, I remember the first magazine cover we ever had. Um, we were like celebrating it um, at a friend's house. And then we went into town where we grew up, Halifax, and we went to our local pub, the rock pub we used to go in. And we went in and everything went quiet. And then all of a sudden, this guy who we'd known for years says, but are you going to buy us all a pint then, you rock star bastard? <laughs> and that kind of just sums it up. You know, I mean, uh, you, you kept at this base level your entire life anyway, whether you like it or not, you know. So you're from the same part of the world that Venom, the, the guys in Venom are from, am I correct in saying that? They're a tiny bit further north than us, but it's a very similar outlook. Yeah, okay. they'll have had exactly the same thing, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking to Abaddon tomorrow night, actually. I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Actually, it's been a good week this week for interviews, I've got to say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so you mentioned uh, the great nation of Finland there, and your drummer is Finnish. That's, uh, I, I'm going to mispronounce your name here, mate, but uh, I apologise if you're listening. But, well, Terry uh, Veyerreiden, is that your drummer's name? Uh, well, well, I, I, I've been attempting to say it from, for the last few <laughs> years now. Val, Valtteri Veren, Veren, no, I can't say it even. We call him, we call him Walt or V. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 pretty difficult language to pronounce. I think the, the Finnish language, you know. But you, you, but, it, but yeah, you get along with him obviously in, because you're yeah, in two he, bands with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, he fits in really well. Yeah, I'm in two bands, but it, it's that's another thing. That's another thing about um, where you grow up. The, the, all the bands that Paradise Lost toured with, toured with over the years, the majority of the bands that we've stayed in touch with have been Finnish bands. And I don't think that can be uh, mm, right. like, like by accident. I think it's because we have very similar self-depreciating sense of humour and outlook on life. Some people might call it miserable or cynical, but I, I think it's just very kind of black humour. Yeah. You know? uh, and, um, yeah, so he fits in very well. In fact, he's better at life than we are, really, uh, <laughs> because we've been in this cocoon for nearly 30 years where we're just still teenage children. So, you know, if, if, if we're in a uh, some kind of um, place in the world and we're lost in a, in a city centre or something, the rest of us will just be bumping into each other and he'll be the one reading the map. <laughs> You know, and he and he's younger than my son, so you know. So. I noticed that, yeah, yeah. I reckon you blokes would be great to go on a tour because I reckon you guys would be Monty Python fans as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it all st a lot of the British humour stemmed from that, so you know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, we see the we see the fun in pretty much any situation, you know. <laughs> Apart from imagine. if you're extremely tired or hungry, then then you become grumpy. So. Yeah. Yeah, do you guys? Uh, this is going to sound like a nutty question, but I, I, I try to get as much detail as I can for people because I find all of this stuff interesting, and I hope other people do anyway. But do you, are you guys 
You don't strike me as a big drinking band. Now, I could be completely wrong there again because I haven't read anything online about it. But, I mean, you just seem too level-headed as a band and you've retained membership and, you know, you've retained that very stable membership since the inception of the band. But am I right in saying you guys aren't big drinkers? You just party when you party and, for the most part, you're pretty straight and sort of... No, not no you you're, complete, you're completely wrong. Right. Uh, no, no, we've, we, we're, we're, we're prolific drinkers. <laughs> um, we, we, we've only That's ever been beaten by a couple of Finnish bands, so uh, well, no, we, we, we yeah, we're, we're, we're constantly disgracing ourselves. It's just we make sure that it doesn't go on the internet. Uh, Radio, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, yeah, we've had our moments definitely, but yeah, no, we, we're, we're pretty big drinkers. Yeah, I, fair I, enough. I would have to say, you know? Yeah, I just I, I spoke. I suppose I talked to a lot of um, our friends from over in the USA, and yeah. I, I do you know sometimes off. Off the record, they'll mention to me, no, no, this, these people can't drink or what have you because that's when the trouble starts and all the rest of the So I sort of started to form a view after, I've done over 100, 100 interviews at this point, and I started to think, look, I'm a musician, but I've never done any tours. Like, I've, you know, been to, around Australia, um, a few cities around Australia, that's not touring, that's just getting on a plane and getting off. Um, mm-hmm. But I started to form a view that you must almost approach touring like as if you're a bloody athlete, endurance athlete, and just return, you know, stay hydrated, eat well, don't eat McDonald's, all of that sort of stuff. But, um, mate, there's got to be some merit there in drinking like a fish, I'd imagine. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, well, we, we pace ourselves a little better these days. Like, if we know we've got something to do, we'll curb it a little bit, the drinking. But for, for years and years, we were just absolutely mental for it. You know, like, just as, as long as there was free beer there, it was going to get drunk, no matter what time of day. You know, um, yeah, and now and now we're not that much different, but we do have a sense of, and it's probably down to the hangovers getting worse as you get older. Oh really. God, don't they just? Yeah, I know. I'm almost giving up drinking for that reason alone. Just yeah, the it's, it's two 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 day hangovers, so you just have to top yourself up to not get a hangover. You know, uh, so yeah, we 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 we're, but it's, again, it's just where we come from. I think you know, it's it was always the way. It's the working class northern English person. It's just, you know, it's just this self-depreciating drunk, and that's kind of what we were. <laughs> and uh, and now we're kind of just a little bit more mellow than that now, I guess. Yeah, cool. All right, mate, I better hurry things along, only because I want to let you get to lunch. And, okay. and, and like, um, yep. I, I, Believe me, I've got plenty of time, but um, I, I want to ask you a question about your excellent guitar playing, because I do strongly encourage any up-and-coming up guitarists listening to study your playing and your approach to the six-string. So... Okay. What's your take on modern day metal, such as any of the brutal bands under the metalcore and deathcore prefix genres that are going around now? Oh, my take on metalcore, metalcore, metalcore is—I have a different word for it. It's bad thrash mm. uh, because it's 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 thrash metal with, to to, to my mind, kind of token choruses thrown in. Um, yeah, it's almost like know. thrash metal with with computer game music mixed in, isn't it? You know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work for me. I mean, I don't know. It's not different enough to. It's not different enough from thrash to have its own name. I don't think you know. Um, it's just the production and maybe the, the the image and stuff like that changed it, and they just rebadged it for a different generation. You know. Well, I think I think there's a lot of young guitarists that are going to give up 
playing heavy metal guitar because they listen to i'm not going to name any bands by the way because i I don't want to do that but there are so many bands out there that just play so lightning fast i don't know how they do it and there was even um a very nice bloke i spoke to by the way but his band they told me and they're quite it was quite open about it they used to record things at half like at a at a pace and then they double it and that'd be the what was on the record so they'd use technology right. to double it. And I think, well, kids at home are going to try and play along to this and get tendonitis or something. Yeah, but, you know, that's been going on since Def Leppard. I remember the story of Def Leppard doing it. They, they recorded things at half speed and then sped them up. Is that right? Jesus, yeah. That's, they they that, weren't that, even playing that's fast. That's what I heard. Though. Yeah. No, I know, but, but just to get it perfect. I mean, um, I, I heard that they were recording one note at a time and things like that, you know, oh, just God. to yeah. get it get it perfect. but. I don't know. I don't know. Different people use different techniques. I, I just think if you can't play it live, it's fairly pointless. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Is, yeah. There is a lot. Of, I know there's a lot of producers that get frustrated with bands that go in because the bands can't even play their own material when they go in, and it's they're expecting it to just be snapped to grid so that it sounds like they're tight. You know, and there's a hell of a lot of that goes on. You know, I don't think there'll ever be bands again that can play as well as like the, the uh, bands of the early 70s, like Kansas and stuff like that. It's just mental how tight they are, you know. Uh, yes, yeah, I know. There's um, I, Years ago, I spoke to Bob Daisley, you know, Ozzy Osbourne's original bass player and wrote a lot of the lyrics and a lot of the music yeah, yeah. as well, it turned out, you know. And he's an excellent bass player and a fantastic musician. And he was telling me about the approach that they took in the studio with uh, Lee Kerslake, of course, from Uriah Heep, who ended up in the band as well. Um, and of course, Randy Rhodes. I mean, who doesn't know Randy Rhodes? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I grew up on that stuff. So I'm I'm you know, I'm 39, but I got into that stuff well after it was released because I was only a kid, yeah. baby, when that stuff was released. But but that that first two records there it had an enormous impression on me in the very in the mid 90s, early in the mid 90s when I was becoming a musician. Now I just I hope that a lot of young guitarists out there, any young guitarists that are listening. They pick up any... I mean, all of your records are pretty good, to be honest, mate. There really isn't... In my view, there isn't a um, a record that you go, no, don't listen to that one with you, with you guys. All I think you've got eight or nine releases, if I'm not mistaken. No, this is going to be the 15th. 15th? Oh, shit. What am I doing there? Why have I written that? Apologies, mate. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> no, I've, I've written the wrong thing. Um, but, look, I, I, you know, I've... Going through your catalogue there, I think you could pick up any one of your, your records and any young guitarist could put it on and if they were so inclined, could study your playing and play along with it and come away a better musician. That's my point. Oh, well, if, if, you, if you think so. I mean, it's not for me to say that because then you sound all conceited and stuff. So, uh... Well, it's 15 records deep and, you know, you are a, you know, I just call you guys heavy metal at the end of the day, but I know there's the doom thing associated with you guys and all the rest of it, but it's just great heavy metal music at the end of the day, and you can hear the guitar playing. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's meant to be, I mean, our music is, it is just metal, yeah, but it's uh, it's meant to be fairly emotive, you know, something that makes you, I, I like music that gives you a feeling of something, whatever it may be, you know, something that conjures up images in your head of something, you know, Um and uh, and to do that, I don't think you can play a gazillion miles an hour unless you're just trying to convey anger and aggression. Yeah, no, you're right. I think the only person that was able to play quite quickly and still able, or not the only, but one of the only people that comes to mind 
that could play quickly and convey emotion was Chuck Schuldiner from Death. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had a great style. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when I first heard the first Death album, I was walking up the stairs in my local record store and I heard it come on and I thought, what the hell is this? It's great. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much the first death metal that I heard, you know. And it, But he had that great sort of, uh, well, he had a very unique lead guitar playing style as well, you know. Yeah, he did, and and um, I also liked the. I don't know whether you heard the. Um, well, people call it power metal, but it's not really that. But the album that he did with Tim Amar on vocals, Control Denied. No, 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 I never heard that. That's got some phenomenal guitar playing. Probably, actually, technically his best guitarist guitar playing that he's ever he ever did. But it's a record because he's not singing on it. He brought in the wonderful vocalist Tim Amar to sing on it. Um, it sort of gets overlooked. It's it's not it's not a brutal album by any means. It's heavy. Yeah. It's fast mm-hmm. at times, but it's got a hell of a lot of emotion in it. And, of course, it's got Tim Amard's glorious vocal all the way through it. So it does get overlooked a bit. I think that'll be one of those records that people will look back on in maybe 10 to 15 years' time as the as the genre even further matures. And they'll go, yeah, that's a record that we missed. I don't know. I'm trying to find a record from the 60s or 70s that people are starting to pick up now. Um, uh, but uh, I'm try- I've got a, an artist in my head, but I, can't, I can visualise him. I can see him bloody playing. But I can't remember. It's not even a metal artist or somebody else, but I digress anyway. My my point would be that okay. I, I think Chuck Schuldiner and a lot of his work is going to be extraordinarily revered through time, actually. I think when, when say, my kids grow a bit older, there will be a lot of people who go, yeah, he's the man, a bit like the way we look at Black Sabbath or something. Oh, well, maybe, maybe. Who knows? I mean, only time will tell because uh, you can never predict what, what um, what's going to happen in a certain scene, can you? Uh I mean, because there is a certain element of right time, right place. Um, there is, and if you're not in the yeah. right time, right place, then then you, you're going to just fall between the cracks. I mean, Lemmy always said that. He said I was the right at the right place at the right time. You know, so and uh, I mean, talented guy and and everything, but yeah, he's he's completely right. If he hadn't have been at the right place, right time, we'd probably never heard of him. You know, was there was there an album for you guys? So the album that I. I the first album I bought from you guys was Draconian Times. Was there an album for you guys where you thought, oh, shit, we're actually going to do this? We are a band that can tour and we are successful and we might even be able to make something resembling a career out of it. Um, it was it was when we were touring the album, album previous to Draconian Times, Icon. Icon, yeah. We, we, did, we, we did this album, Icon, and then all of a sudden we were getting asked... We were getting on, put on MTV all the time, and we were getting asked to do all these tours. Like Sepultura asked us to do the Chaos AD tour with them, and uh, you know we just seemed to be in demand all the time. And then it just seemed to slip out of our hands almost, like like we had no control over anything anymore. We were apart from the music. We, it was all like you're going here next, you're going there next, you're going there next, and before you knew it, we were away from home for maybe with hardly any breaks, maybe four years straight. And uh, it kind of drives you mad in a way. You know, it's great because you feel it all excited and you're you're at um, your pinnacle and you're, you're feeling like nothing can go wrong and all the rest of it. But at the same time, you're feeling like you're caught in something that you, you can't, you know, you're on a bike, bicycle without brakes, you know. Um, and that's why we start to diversify more because we just wanted some control back, I guess, you know, and some something to keep it fresh for us rather than just a repetition, you know. Yeah, no, I understand, mate. And and the album that I think causes the most conjecture amongst fans, for Paradise Lost fans at least, I think is Believe in Nothing. 
Is that? Do you get a lot of feedback about that to this day? Uh, that's that's generally thought of as the worst Paradise Lost album. I think most people say. Um, personally, I think it's it's it suffered at the time from compromise, compromise to a certain degree with it, within the band, but not so much. It was more compromised with the label. Um, we were on EMI at the time, and they remixed the album two or three times without us even being there. Mm, and yeah. uh, and and completely took it away from us, and we just got the rights back actually about six months ago to that album. Right. Okay. And and we found that we found the old tapes, and the guy who just produced the new Paradise Lost album producer called uh, Jamie Gomez Arolano, we've had him remix it from scratch, like like take the old tapes and just mix it, um, and it sounds great now. And I think when people hear this, they'll think, oh wow, it's a good metal album. You know, but yeah, no, agreed. Yeah, I didn't. That's the same, mate. I I didn't think it was bad, but you know, fans out there have their own view on what Paradise Lost should sound like, and I guess they just felt that. I, I think a lot of the criticism was more focused on. Um, I think it was John Fryer. Was he the producer? Yeah, John Fryer did it. Yeah, I think John Fryer produced it. He produced it very weirdly, and then it was remixed and compromised and compromised and compromised, and it was just, it was just like it. You were listening to the album through a pillow or something in the end. And it just had no dynamics and no excitement about it. Um, and I can totally understand why people said what they did, you know. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Fair enough, yeah. Are, are any of those tracks going to be included on the upcoming Australian tour in December? Um, who knows? Who knows? I mean, we, we've yet to decide on... Um, I mean, the thing is, we have an eight-week tour of Europe prior, directly prior to that, to the Australian tour. So we're going to have plenty of time to hone the set into what we think it should be for promoting Medusa. So, you know, we'll find out what songs from Medusa work best live and also at what position in the set and what other songs we should put in to create the light and shade. Um, so, so I think when we, by the time we get to Australia, not that it should take that long, of course, but by the time <laughs> we get to Australia, we should have honed the set to exactly what it should be for this record, you know. Yeah, now fair enough. Um, just want to ask a, a question about some of your peers that you came through with. So I always um, I got into you guys, uh, My Dying Bride and Cradle of Filth at the same time, right. and all three of you have had, well, as, as you get from my perspective, a lot of success, but for very different reasons. And you mentioned Nick Barker before. Now I uh, I appreciate we're here to talk about Paradise Lost, but you're an interesting guy, and you've you've offered a lot of. Um, uh, very thoughtful opinions and uh, feedback and some of the other questions I've asked. I'm going to go here on this one here. What's your take okay. on Cradle of Filth's music in 2017? And, 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 and I'll provide some context. I felt that the trajectory the band were on when they had that excellent guitarist, and I don't know whether you know him. This is the first time I've asked this question, actually. Stuart Ansis, the bloke who recorded Dusk and Her Embrace and also um, Cruelty and the Beast. And then when he right. left, it just sort of went haywire and they started to become pretty stale. To be, that's my personal feeling about it. But do you know what happened to him? I don't know what happened to him. I never really knew. I know a lot of people who do know him because, I mean, our our tour manager slash sound guy who goes all over the world with us is called Les Smith. He was... Yeah, Lecter. He was the keyboard player. That's right. That, he was Lecter, wow. so he knows all that. Yeah. He was the one who... who basically got Adrian in 
in Cradle of Filth, and Adrian, who eventually was in Paradise Lost as well. Um, so we have lots of very mutual acquaintances and friends, and it's all very, I guess you could say a little bit, um, you know, dipping each each other's toes in each other's it's wars. A big you know, family, yeah. yeah, big family. Kind, kind, kind of. We've all known each other a long time. I mean, one of Cradle of Filth's earliest gigs, one of their first gigs, was supporting Paradise Lost in Liverpool. And uh, Danny's dad drove them to the gig in a car. <laughs> and they, they, they weren't even black metal yet. They were wearing, like, Bermuda shorts like Anthrax at the time. Jesus. Um, but, but, they were still called, but they were still called Cradle of Filth. And I was, I'll never forget, that uh, after the show, um, Danny's dad came up to me and said, so what did you think to my lads then? Like, uh, you know, like, really proud. And it was really... <laughs> it was awkward. It, it was, yeah, no, it was really heartwarming, though. You know, it was yeah. like... All right, okay. Really nice. Yeah. Okay, that's so good. we've known we've known them for so long. I I find it hard to have a an objective opinion on a lot of bands that I know really well, um, because I'm kind of happy that they're still doing things that they're passionate about and that, that they they do well. I mean, Cradle of Filth, yeah, turned from I, I guess a more um, sort of say serious black metal band. I don't know if that's the word, but they became more about the uh, image for a while there. You yeah, know, definitely. Became... Yeah, and I think that's when oh. I started to tune out around Midian. Actually, Midian was dead on when I tuned out, yeah. Well, they just became a, a, a very theatrical, and um, that's fine. I, th- I think they tapped into something that, you, you know, that worked for them, but maybe didn't work for some of the more underground, serious black metal fans at the time, you know. Um yeah, I but, just, but it's, it's given them a, a great career, you know. I mean, uh, if they hadn't have done that, who knows what would have happened? No, I, 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 I can't but not agree with you on that point there. The, because of the changes that Danny has made due to the, to the lineups and stylistic and artistic and musical changes, mm-hmm. all the changes that he's made, he has had a very long career. Mate, I just, people forget that in the late 90s, there were a few leading lights. You guys were one of them. Metal was completely underground. There was, I mean, I could probably name all of the bands that were successful in inverted commas on two hands. Amorphous, who you're probably mates with. Um, yeah, yeah. Yourselves, My Dying Bride, Cradle of Filth, Sepultura, Pantera, Strapping Young Lad. Jesus, it gets very skinny after that list. Yeah, I know really what you're saying. Really skinny, not, yeah. And, yeah, I know what you're saying. And even Iron Maiden back then were, you know, Virtual Eleven. Remember that album? <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but, you know... Um, that wasn't a good album, and metal was at its lowest ebb in about 1997 or 1998. And, you know, particularly, I'm a big fan of British music, you know, way back from New Album to now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the three of you were releasing fantastic albums through the late 90s that, in my view, were really keeping metal, um, if you like, you were pushing the boundaries and you were keeping it fresh. You were keeping it somewhere near not in the mainstream, but at least I could go into a local record store because remember those things, record stores? Um, yeah, yeah. At least I could go into a record store and pick up a Paradise Lost album or a My Dying Bride album or a Cradle of Filth album. Um, you were one of a, a select few bands that you could actually do that with back in those days. Um, and I guess my point about Cradle of Filth was that in the absence of Iron Maiden effectively being Iron Maiden, I actually thought that that was a trajectory that they were on, and a lot of that came down to the guitar playing of Stuart Ansis. I just loved that Adrian Smith-style guitar approach that he brought to that band. And when Paula Lender came back in, they sort of went back to being this Slayer-style 
death medley sort of a thing. You know, that's technique that he, he right, has, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that he plays. I won't go into too much technical terminology here, but eight, um, Adrian was almost about to call him Adrian then, Adrian Smith. Um, Stuart Ansis's guitar playing is very open. It's very broad. And I, I love listening to that. And I play, I used to play along to it. Exactly that. What I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm encouraging people to do to your playing. I used to do that to Stuart Ansis's playing. And I think by doing that, I became a better metal guitarist. Um, and, and I, I thought, mate, as I said, <laughs> the opportunity came up to ask somebody who might have known him. So I've done that. But, uh, is he, I read online that he was running a record store somewhere. You see, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I, he's, an, he's a friend of friends, so I, I don't really, I haven't really kept tabs on it. I, I mean, I, obviously, I could ask people like like, like Les, you know, Lecter or Adrian or someone, and they, they would know more than me. Um, but you know, there's, there, 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 Cradle of Filth were a bit of a revolving door at one point. Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, question, yeah. So, so it's hard to keep tabs on all. You know, some people I still know, some people I don't know anymore. You know, uh, you know, life gets in the way when you're in a touring band. Sometimes people just have to leave for their families or, or for other reasons. You know, and it's uh, it's not a life for everybody. You know. No, no, that's right. But um, Les or, or Lecter, I think, as a lot of people would know him, as he's referred to himself in the um, album booklets, as an excellent keyboard player. Yeah that really, really did a lot for that band, I think, through his tenure. Um, but I digress. Yeah, well, yeah. well he, 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 went, he went on to be an anathema for quite a long time and uh, yeah, co-write a lot right. of their stuff. So, you know. so what, is, what does he do for you guys again? Is he, is he your keyboard player now? Or, um... No, he's our, he's our front-of-house sound engineer. Wow, okay. So he's coming to Australia, is he? Yeah, he'll be in Australia with us, yeah. yeah. Man, I'd love to catch up with you guys. Gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Broad chat, I know, but I'd love to catch up with you guys and have a beer. Actually, it'd be great. You know, it's um, yeah. Anyway, um, mate, I've got one more question, and it is divided okay. into three parts. And I, w- I want to take this opportunity to really thank you for the responses that you've given. This is going to make for an excellent podcast episode. It gives people some insight into my psyche into some of the bands that I've loved through uh, getting into heavy metal and the like as well. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. So here's Good the one. first of my final three questions, and and they're all about you, mate. They're all about you, Greg. Okay. So, okay. here I go. Greg, choose three quest- three choose three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. Um, probably. Oh um, yeah, um, Solitary uh, is one. Um, pensive and. Uh, Mm. Neurotic. Nice. Okay. All right. Doesn't doesn't paint a very good picture. I was trying to think about <laughs> words. You know? No, it's it works for me actually. I can just imagine you um, having a few bevies and uh, explaining why, explaining why those three words would best describe yourself. Yeah, but it just makes me sound like Jack Torrance from The Shining or something. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. Next question is. If you could go back to when you're 18 years of age and provide some advice to yourself, what would you say? I, I, I know this one because I don't have any regrets about anything, but I know this one. This is, I would tell myself to relax and not take life so seriously. Yes. Because I was extremely uptight and I, I still am quite uptight, but nowhere near what I was. And, uh, and yeah, just relax and just enjoy life for what it is because I, Everything was, I was so serious, and uh, so serious to the point it hurt, you know. Um, what, so yeah, that'd definitely be it, you know. 
At what point did you realise there was no use in being so uptight and so serious? Because that's such a good statement you made. Um, I, I, it wasn't a realisation. It's taken decades um, to kind of, you, you know, where you uncurl your toes because you're so tense. It's taken decades for that to happen. And even now there's a bit of that left in me, but, um, you know, it's if, if I could shake myself and say just relax just hmm. stop being so stop being so serious i would definitely that would that would be the, the the definitely the key point i would make you know i don't think a lot of people know how to relax i think that's part of the bloody problem it's like a relaxation is a tool you know and it's um i i mean i mean i'm probably like a lot of people in the way that i relax is by having a few bevies after a long working week but well tr- tr- true true i mean i mean that's yeah but that's that's the way of the world the these world. days i mean you 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 celebrate. I'm especially in the UK. People celebrate by drinking. People unwind by drinking. Uh, people commiserate by drinking. You know, there's not there's not really anything that people don't do without drinking. You know. No, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my final question of the evening, or well, evening for me, is mm-hmm. if you could invite five guests to dinner from any time in history, living or dead, who would you invite? Um, huh. Uh, this is a weird one, and he's still living, but it's something that I've been obsessed with since being a kid. It would be Ted Neely, who played Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical of the motion picture, who still tours it now. Um, I was just right. obsessed with it as a kid, as a kid, because my mother was. I hate musicals. I hate Jesus. I hate religion. <laughs> but, uh, but for some reason, I'm obsessed with this musical. And um, I always have been, and I'd just really love to meet that guy. I mean, I've seen him live once, uh, but he's like in his 70s now or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'd like to meet that guy. Sweet. Uh, um, Another guy, let me think. uh, Probably I'd like Pete Steele to be there because Mm, he was a great – he was a friend of mine and – he was a great force for music and an intelligent bloke and he wrote some of the funniest lyrics that I've ever read that people didn't get. Um, and just, just a great all round guy and created some great music, you know, uh, no, I agree. And it was sadly missed. Sad that he's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did one of the last tours that he ever did together in the UK and it was sad to see him so unwell and, didn't seem very happy either so it was uh, you know so uh, yeah it's not good what very happened sad. there yeah. yeah it's not good what mm-hmm. happened there actually it's good a lot of his is the musicians in typo negative have gone on to do very interesting things i was talking to rex from pantera the other day and johnny kelly's actually his drummer now yeah he's done quite a lot of things johnny kelly hasn't he i mean he was in he, initially he was just in this led zeppelin cover band or whatever and then he did a few other things and he did danzig as well yeah that's right um, yeah. yeah yeah and he's uh, yeah seems to be uh, seems to be Carrying on working quite a lot, doing a lot of things, you know. The, the weird one is is um, is Josh, who I got along quite well with. Josh um, Silver, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got along quite well with him, but he had um, a few people took his humour the wrong way, maybe, and stuff like that. Um, they they but, were, but he, that whole band had an odd sense of humour, though, didn't they? Yeah, but Josh Josh has kind of disappeared, and I think, I mean, when we did that last tour with them, I was talking to him, and he said. I'm actually in training to be a paramedic right now. It's almost like he knew he was going to just stop 
you oh, know, wow. even so that. He's, he's not in the music industry anymore. Oh, well, you know, he's he's not in a band and touring anymore. Is that right? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. But even back then, he was trained to be a paramedic. Like, he knew he was just going to drop out. And this was before Pete Steele went, you know, so. Yeah, um, yeah, in, yeah. Interesting guys. Josh, Josh and Pete were very interesting guys, I think, yeah. Yeah, high, high, oh. highly underrated band, I think. I should have included them in, in the bands, you know, along with your good selves, um, in those bands that were keeping metal afloat in the late 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly got into them. October Rust, I thought, was a great album. Actually, I know a lot of people don't consider that one of their better albums, but their cover of the, um, is it the Neil Young song, Cinnamon Girl, or the Bob Dylan song? Um, oh, right, cover. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great Yeah, cover. no, they did, they, they did some great covers. And what was the one, um, oh, Summer Breeze that they did was... Yeah. Uh, Fantastic song as well, so, you know. Uh, yeah, so that's two, is it? That's two, yeah. yeah. that's two. two. Um, I'm trying to think of someone that isn't in music. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah. I'm just trying to think what I've been obsessed with over the years. Um, films, what films have I been obsessed with? Uh, um, oh, um, I think um, a weird one that that I don't know why I'd want her there, but I just love one of the films that she was in. Um, what's the name of the film? It's um, a ghost story film. What the fuck's it called? Uh, with Nicole Kidman. Oh yeah, uh, where where the, the daughter, her daughter's a ghost. Hang on, I'll Google. Yeah. It. Hang on, uh, Nicole. Kid. The others, the others. The others, yep. Gosh, you beat me to it. They're yeah. right there, yep. Really, really love that film. Great atmosphere about it. And for that film alone, I'd like to meet Nicole Kidman. I don't actually like her in a lot of other stuff. but And I think she's a great actress. She just overstretches herself sometimes. Uh, doing too many films. Yeah, I think um, she can she, be pretty wooden. Actually, she's a bit like Keanu Reeves in that she's got a couple of facial expressions that she overutilizes, and you know, she that could that could be Botox, though. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to guess, but uh, you know. I remember as a kid uh, having a VHS tape of her in a film called BMX Bandits. Oh yeah, I remember that. I went to the cin- I went to the cinema to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely different now. She had freckles and everything back then. They've all gone now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's blonde and Hollywood now, so yeah. Um, yeah, that's just because that film. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, it's hard to think of people that you kind of want for this dinner party off the cuff because I don't really like people. Um, <laughs> uh, You've done well so far. Who was a great wit? Um, 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 I don't know. Someone, someone, someone quite abrasive and funny would be good. Um, I had um, Frank Zappa the other day. Someone said Frank Zappa. Right. Okay. Yeah. Only yeah. because I, I really like what he could be. He could be very serious though too. I understand that he was at the front line of the um, of the defence of um, you know when Tipper Gore's uh, Parent Music Resource Centre was attacking bands like Wasp and Ozzy Osbourne and the like. Yeah, I remember it was Jello Biafra was another one that was really fighting her and all that. The PMRC was it called? Or something yes. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I'm like a comedian there, someone um, John, maybe John, like. Do you know Frankie Boyle? 
No, I, I've heard of the name. I've heard of the name, but he's, tell me more. He, he's a he's a Scottish comedian who's he's very very harsh, and sometimes too harsh, sometimes annoying. But his his monologues are just incredibly funny. He just did um, a short series of things where he was talking about the British election. And it's just so harsh. It's, it, you're kind of covering your eyes and your ears as you're laughing, you know. Yeah, uh, I actually, I do know him because I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so, yep. so that, that that would be quite amusing, I guess. Frankie Boyle. Uh, <laughs> I'd have to I'd have to go with um, Steve Coogan as well because I just love a lot of stuff that he's done, like Alan Partridge and um, Saxon Dale is great. Um, oh yeah, God, yeah, Steve Coogan, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah, uh, just just for the laugh, very you know, funny. For the, uh, yeah, um, and oh, this is a really, really obvious one, but just because I'm just be just because of who it is, it'd have to be Hendrix, really. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, you had to have a Guitar Hero in there somewhere, you know. It's uh, man, that's a good list. I mean, there are- there are, there are loads of people that I would, you know, loads of guitarists that I like, but it's just, uh, you know, I've seen documentaries on him and watched lots of things on him, and me and my son watch things together about him, and it's just a bit of an, a, a bit of an enigma, if you know what I mean. So, so would you take? Like, would you take? I would. I would actually imagine from your playing that Richie Blackmore would be a bit of an influence. Uh, Richie Blackmore's a bit of an influence, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's quite a, there's quite a few players from classic classic rock. That influenced me a lot more than the eighties did, I guess. Um, like Leslie West, I, those sorts of guys. Just, just because, just because um, I'm kind of into just feel more than dexterity, if you know what I mean. You know, yeah, just, for sure. Yeah, you bend, could always write a good riff, like but you could always write a tremendous riff as well. That's that's where I think your classic rock rock influence must come from. I've always noticed that with you guys that have been in bands for many years and released many albums. You do you you part of the reason you can do that is because you can write these almighty riffs, and I think a lot of that comes from years spent listening to guys like Blackmore or Leslie West or Hendrix um, or the guitarist um, in. Um, did you like Blue Cheer at all? I did like some Blue Cheer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can. I think I can hear that. I think I can actually hear that. So, yeah, it's. Um, I, I often do that. I often think when I'm studying somebody's playing, because I do it quite a bit with my bass or the guitar, and I sit down and go, oh, that sounds a bit like, I don't know the names of the guitarists, and name of the guitarist in Blue Cheer, sorry, but, oh, that sounds a bit like that. I wonder if when he was writing that riff, that's what he was thinking about, or something like that. My mind tends to go into some funny places sometimes when I'm studying somebody's playing, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, I'm going to have to go, mate, unfortunately. I've got, I, right. I, I, only have, <laughs> I only have half an hour till my next interview, and I've got to eat something. So, no, I know. I'm sorry for taking up so much of your time, but I really no, appreciate it. No, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Been a wonderful chat, and thank you so much. And um, yeah, I'll be in the audience at least when when you come down in December. But if it's all possible, mate, I'd love to catch up with you and shake your hand and have a beer with you. Yeah, of course, and I'll introduce you to Lecter as well. <laughs> mate, that'd be unreal. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, mate. All right. Nice, nice talking. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, and my name is Andrew Mackay Smith. The interview subject you just heard from was Gregor McIntosh from the UK outfit Paradise Lost. Thanks so much for listening.